one of the most beloved promises in the Bible. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. As we come to the end of Paul's letter, in the 15th chapter, he, he kind of lets us in on some of his hopes and dreams. And we're going to use this opportunity to think about the things that Paul is considering as he comes to the end of his ministry. Um, we'll consider Paul's life and our purpose. I'll ask you a question at the end. If based on what you learn about Paul this morning, about how he was called and the things that he encountered, where things landed and how things will transpire even into the future, I'm going to ask you a question. If this promise is, if this promise is true for him, did God cause things to work together for good in Paul's life? And that will be important. Because God makes the same promise to us. And if God is faithful to do it in Paul's life, he will be faithful to do it in ours as well. Um, let's familiarize ourselves with Paul's life. Um, he grew up in a strict Jewish upbringing in Tarsus, a city in the Roman Empire located in what is present-day Turkey. If you're making the trip from Tarsus to Jerusalem, which Paul had to make three times a year, it's about the same distance as if you're going from Rapid City to Sioux Falls, Sioux Falls to Rapid City. It's about that distance, but in those days you didn't have a car, so it took you longer. Uh, Paul was born a Roman citizen. And when you think of Roman citizenship, it's not like being a U.S. citizen. Not everyone was a Roman citizen. In fact, Roman citizenship was prized. It was sought after. We don't know how Paul obtained it. What you had to do is do something special to be a Roman citizen or pay a bunch of money. Again, not everybody was. And presumably, uh, Paul's father, his grandfather, or his great-grandfather did something that caused the Roman officials to be able to deed the Roman citizenship to them, and then as Paul would grow up in that family, he would be um, allowed to be a Roman citizen. It passed from generation to generation. Uh, it might be that since Paul's family was in the tent-making business, if there was a proconsul who was interested in providing for the soldiers and Paul, maybe his Father and grandfather provided tents. Anyways, what ended up happening is that he was given citizenship. One thing is among the citizenship and the residents of Tarsus, um, there were few Roman citizens. Again, it was rare. And so Paul would have grown up as a Roman citizen in the social elite. He was born into a Jewish family. The family would be strictly observant of the Jewish way of life and would have maintained links with Israel. Uh, most Jews in the Roman Empire spoke Greek, and they went to synagogues where the Greek language was um, used, and prayers were um, read and recited in Greek. Paul would have attended a synagogue where the service was conducted in Hebrew. He was very orthodox. Uh, as an Orthodox Jew, Paul would have been given little opportunity to join in the things that other kids or 
young adults his age were involved in. He would have been separated from those things, and he would have to pick his friends and his activities carefully. There were three levels of education. We've talked about this before, but just by way of repeating, um, they referred to each of these levels as a house. It was Bet Safer was house of the book, Bet Talmud, house of learning, Bet Midrash, house of study, Bet Sefer, the first level of Jewish education, was at the synagogue from ages 6 till 10. Our classes were held five days a week. By the time you were 10 years old, by the time Paul was 10, he had memorized, memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy by the time they were 10. Uh, most concluded their formal education at this point, not hard to understand, and went home to the family trade. But those who were very good students went on to Bet Talmud, the house of learning. Students who excelled were allowed to continue in school between the ages of 10 and 14. They studied and memorized the remaining Hebrew scriptures, and they also learned the art of asking and answering questions as a means of studying and learning um, for those students who were still excelling and at the top of their class, the final level of education was opened, which was Bet Midrash, the house of study. If you were smart enough and knew your scriptures well enough, you were given the opportunity to learn from a rabbi. This privilege was offered to very few people. You agreed to take on the beliefs and the interpretations of the scriptures that the rabbi you studied with believed. So, in fact, what that was called, taking on the yoke of the rabbi. What that meant, if you took on the yoke of the rabbi, you were then putting yourself in a position where you would try to think about God and about scriptural things the way he did. That's what is called taking on his yoke. And if you think about what Jesus said, remember what Jesus said, um, Come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You were involved in this education between the ages of 15 and 30 for a decade and a half. You sat at the feet of the rabbi and did what he did. In fact, they have, and you could see it sometimes if the rabbi was limping because something happened, his disciples would be going behind him, you know, doing the, you know, kind of like the walk this way. Okay, I'll walk. Uh, And not kidding, that they patterned themselves after the rabbi. Um, Paul's parents would have arranged for him to spend his years in Jerusalem uh, between the age of 15 and 30, uh, studying under the ranking Pharisee Gamaliel. It's kind of interesting, though. You know what ended up happening? If you got through your studies, about, you know, so they said about 15 years, I think Paul did it more quickly, um, about the age of 30, you could become a rabbi yourself. Kind of interesting. When did Jesus start his public ministry? about age 30. So he wouldn't have sat under a rabbi. He was taught by the father. 
but he was a rabbi, and he called then his disciples were his students. They, they took their yoke upon him, and he invites us to do that as well, to look at God and as at spiritual things the way Jesus does. He's a rabbi. In fact, when it says, but as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God. We see receiving as something done one time in prayer. So again, it's, that can be the beginning of a discipleship relationship, but it's not really when it says they received him, it's not that they prayed a prayer. Again, that, what it meant in the context is they received him as a rabbi. And they then determined that they would sit at his feet and learn about God through him. That's really what it means to receive Christ, to receive him as a rabbi to sit at his feet and learn. It's what you're doing this morning. That's what a disciple does. Um, chances are that Paul would have been familiar with Jesus when he was studying with Gamaliel in Jerusalem. Um, we don't know if he knew Jesus. What we do know is that he would have considered Jesus a national threat and that he would have been um, vehemently Opposed, especially as Jesus started to make claims that he was God. Uh, Gamaliel, his rabbi, urged caution, but when Paul came out from under the yoke of Gamaliel and became a Pharisee and a rabbi in his own right, he made it his mission to punish Jews who became Christians. When Stephen is stoned, when somebody is subjected to capital punishment, you couldn't do that unless a ranking government official was there. And what you did then, when you took this matter into your hands and did what the scripture says needed to be done, when somebody blasphemes, you stone what ends up happening, then that Paul, Saul at the time was there, and people laid their garments at his feet. He is the ranking official. In this context, Paul heard and answered God's call. He was on his way to Damascus to round up Christians and punish them. If you look in your worship folder, look what it says in Acts, Acts 26, 14 through 18. So what we're going to do, we're going to kind of follow Paul's life along. We're going to try to get a picture of his life, what happened to him, what he thought about, what promises he considered important. And then what we're going to do at the end, again, is we're going to answer the question. Did God cause all things to work together for good? That's our, that's our mission this morning. Um, what it says, Paul's describing what happened to him on the way to Damascus. There was a bright light. And here's what he says. I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic. This was the language that Paul would have. It's a Hebrew dialect. This is the one that he would have spoken when he was being raised in Tarsus. But he would have learned in the synagogue, not Greek, but this language. Um, and so Jesus speaks to him in this dialect, says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now, get up. Stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you 
as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. That's what Jesus commissions Paul to do. He says, Paul, this is what's going to happen. I want you to hear what I'm saying. I want you to observe what I do because I'm going to want you to remember this and to reflect this to others. He was to be a witness. Then he goes on, um, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. Select him out. I am sending you to them, to the Gentiles, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So here's what Jesus tells Paul, I'm going to appear to you. I want you to remember what I say, remember what you see, because you are going to reflect this to Gentiles. And when Gentiles hear these words and believe them, when they hear about what I do and take note of these things, make room for these things in their mind, in making room for these things, they will become sanctified by faith in me and receive forgiveness of sins. Again, that's what forgiveness is based on. It's based on believing. The Bible talks about the message as being the good news. What do you do with good news? You believe it. It's There are things to do, but first and foremost, the message is something to believe in. And when you believe in it, then the behavior comes on the far side of believing. Some people are confused, and they think Christianity is first and foremost something you do. It is not. Christianity is first and foremost something you believe. And then on the heels of believing, the fruit of your life will cause you to align with what God wants you to do. That's what, in order to love, you've got to be loved. That's why God wants us to believe what Jesus says to Paul and as Paul passes on to us. Um, goading, as we've said before, is prodding. It's an attempt to get somebody back in line. You, to goad is you use a sharp stick or sometimes something with a metal point. And the purpose of goading was when you had an animal that wouldn't get in line, you poked it in the flanks to get it in line. And what Jesus ends up saying to Paul is it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And what he depicts then is Paul being goaded. Who was goading Paul? We've talked about this before. Many think that God was goading Paul. He was prodding him with things about Jesus and trying to get him back in line. God is not goaded. God doesn't goad. If God wants to influence you, he's going to knock you off the donkey. That's what he did with Paul. He didn't subtly suggest things. He just, boom, crap, knees down. And so, where's the goading coming from? It's coming from other Jewish officials. Paul's a Roman citizen, but a Jewish politician. And what they want, they don't want Paul's Roman loyalties to get in the way of his Jewish loyalties. So what are they doing? poke, 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 and they're trying to, to get him to align himself with them. And Paul has some tension. 
because he's a Roman, but he's a Jew, and he's a Jew because he's a Roman. And so he is trying to, you know what you do when you're poked, you just try to stop, you know, like when your sister is pinching you. Pinch, 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 which is a little bit like a goat. Stop it, stop it. So that's what they're, and that's what Jesus indicates. Paul, you know why you're going to Damascus? Because you're tired of being goaded. See, if he can blow up Christians, Jews like that and Romans like that. So he can make peace with the, both parts of himself until Jesus says um, that he has a mission for him. Um, Jesus appeared and turned Paul's life and the world upside down. Uh, Paul came to understand that he was part of the fulfillment of a prophecy made by Isaiah 700 years earlier. If Paul had a book that he, he made room for in the Old Testament of the Scriptures, it seems that Paul's book was Isaiah. He's, so many of his thoughts and his images are from Isaiah. He quotes the prophecies of Isaiah. I think he saw himself reflected in the pages. I think that's what Jesus ended up revealing to him. Look what it says. It's on the back part of your worship folder. Um, that sheet from Isaiah, it says, My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth. What Isaiah is describing Really, God is saying through Isaiah, there's going to be a redeemer. A redeemer is a rescuer. Somebody who, because of what they do, rescues people. This is what Jesus was. God sees misinformation as being something that keeps us in bondage. When we don't see God correctly, it ends up incarcerating us spiritually. When we don't have the right thoughts about God, if you don't have the right thoughts about him, you can't have the right beliefs about him, right? And if you don't have the right beliefs about him, you can't have the right behaviors toward him and towards others. That's why when God sent Jesus to be the Savior, the way Jesus saves is he tells us the truth about who God is. He tells us things so our thoughts are correct. If our thoughts become correct, our beliefs become correct. If our beliefs become correct, our behaviors start to move in the direction of being the behaviors that God wants from us. Beliefs lead to behaviors. We find that in Paul's writing. And what it goes on to say, I have put the words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth, the mouth of the Redeemer, Jesus, but not just Jesus. Listen to what it says. Or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. What Paul understood, I think, he was one of the offspring. And Jewish Christians were as well. God could have chosen a number of different means whereby he might put his thoughts in our brain. He could have chosen 
to stream his thoughts directly into our brain, not using any kind of other person. He could have done that. What happens here, what we see here, is that God puts spirit words not directly into the brain of mankind, but he puts them into the brain and mouth of the Redeemer. And that's Jesus. Jesus passes these words on to his offspring and his offspring's offspring. And the way God reflects and announces his message from mouth to ear to mouth to ear to mouth to ear interpersonally, it doesn't seem the way God reveals himself, he doesn't throw a book in a room and say, I will meet with you. Now, God does speak through his scriptures, but the scriptures are the results of those who heard and passed on. Um, That's why I think it's important that we gather together and talk about it. We learn things from one another about God. Um, In the early 40s, and so this was his commission, what ended up happening? About maybe 10 years later, in the early 40s, persecutions and famines pushed Jewish Christians out of Israel. Persecution started to flare up. We know that there was a severe famine from the years 46 to 48 in Israel. Um, in the late 40s, so Jewish Christians then went out into the Roman Empire in the 40s. In the late 40s, problems developed. Because Jews who didn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah, which was the majority of Jews, 10% of the Roman Empire was Jewish. And these Jew, Jewish Christians who were forced out of Israel, they came into conflict in Rome. What ended up happening, the emperor decided, that's all I can stand, I can't stand no more. If you're a Jew, you're out. And in the end of the 40s, Jews were expelled out of Rome until a new emperor ended up coming into power about five years later, and then Jews started to come back in. Paul writes this letter within one to two to three years of when the Jews started to come back into Rome. And I think this is why. When the Jews had left, the Gentiles were kind of on their own. And now, as Jews were coming back in, see, the thing that would have confused Gentiles is those individuals who knew the Bible better than they did, who are telling them things that don't match what Paul was telling them. Can you understand that? If most Jews would use the Old Testament to disprove Jesus, God doesn't do that type of thing. God blesses you if you behave, and he curses you if you disbehave, right? It's in the scriptures. Do the scriptures change? No, of course the scriptures don't change. What Paul is saying, but Jesus reveals a new covenant. The problem is, when there's no Jewish Christians there to help the Gentiles understand that, they are kind of 
Well, they need representatives. They need someone to tell them what to believe so that they can believe it, so that as they believe it, it will begin to impact their behavior. That's the way it works. So Paul writes this letter to try to bring about an understanding of exactly what the truth that Jesus revealed to Paul to reveal to Gentiles is. And we've been looking at that as we've gone through this letter. Um, Look what Paul says then as we come to Romans 15. He starts, I myself am satisfied about you, he writes, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness. Now we're in Romans 15, verse 14, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. He says, but on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about himself as participating in the priestly service of the gospel of God. The problem is, Paul is not a Levite. To be a Jewish priest, you had to be a Levite. Paul was from the tribe of Benjamin. You say, so what? Paul then is a new class of priest, a new class of Jewish priest, a Jewish Christian priest, a new covenant priest. Here's what Hebrews says, and we'll start to see these things as we go through it. It says in Hebrews, When there is a change in law, there must be a change in the priesthood. The reason what a priest exists for is to help us understand the law that the priest was tasked to serve. If you were a Levitical priest, the way God described it to Moses on Mount Sinai, what you served was Old Covenant law. That's what you were bound to do. In the way that lawyers defend the Constitution, priests defended Old Covenant law. Paul was not one of these. God called him to be the first, Jesus was the high priest, of a new class of priesthood. Not a priest that serves old covenant law, but a priest that serves new covenant law. That's what Paul was. And in the priestly service, what Paul does is he takes his understanding of the new covenant. He's a new covenant priest, and guess who he goes to reveal this stuff to? Us, Gentiles. God takes him, makes him a priest so that we will have an opportunity to learn not about the God of the old covenant, but the God of the new. That's what Paul identifies himself as. Um, What it says in Isaiah 66, 19, this is the last chapter of Isaiah. 
This way he says, I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survive to the nations. We talked about this. What it's talking about, Isaiah promised that what was going to happen in Israel, that God would put a sign in Israel, that some Israelites would see the sign and understand it. What was that sign? The cross. It was Jesus Christ and the crucifixion. Some would see that and say, I know what that means. That means that it's no longer that God operates by an old covenant. Because what did Jesus say? This is the, in my blood. This is the new covenant. They, I get it. He's He's rescinding the old covenant and making a new covenant. What, what Paul understood, what Isaiah predicted, that that's what was going to happen. Some would see the sign, and then God would tell you, well, look what it says. They said, they, they will proclaim my glory among the nations. Nation means Gentiles. And they will bring all your brothers from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem. As an offering to the Lord. Let me tell you what this means. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick on Jake. <laughs> I'll give, I'll give Travis the morning off. Um, say I'm in Jerusalem. And what God did, He tasked Paul and Jewish Christians to go into the Roman Empire. Now let's say Jake the Gentile. This is Jake. He's the drummer. Jake the Gentile. So when it's happening is as new covenant priests explain this to Jake. And if Jake then listens and if he continues to understand what Paul is depicting is I am sharing God's glory, his new covenant glory. Now, if Jake sees this, smile, Jake. See, look at this smile. Look at this. Does this guy see the new covenant glory or what? He does. I mean, he's it's, he's dialed in. What ends up happening, then here's the way Paul understands it. Jake becomes, stand up, Jake. I'm not going to do anything embarrassing to you. Do you know what Jake becomes? An offering. You know what priests do? Priests bring offerings to God. They used to be animals. God doesn't want animal sacrifices anymore. You know what he wants? Individuals who have been changed because they've understood the new covenant. So here's the way Paul thinks about it. When Jesus comes a second time, we're going to come up before Jesus, and those Jewish Christians are going to present offerings to God. Gentiles. Gentiles who, because of the influence of Jewish Christians, have been able to express to Gentiles who God is, and then they become, Gentiles become the offerings. And thanks, Jake. And what, oh, he, he, and what Jesus is going to say to Jake, welcome. Welcome. I came so that you would be able to be part of my forever family. That's what Jesus is going to hear. And that's what you're going to hear, Jake. And do you know what those Jewish Christians are going to hear? The ones 
through whom we Gentiles have heard? Well done. Well done. You know what the, what is better than being in heaven? I mean, is there anything that can top heaven? How about this? Knowing that you're in heaven because God used me as a spokesperson. The only thing better than being in heaven is knowing that other people are in heaven because of you. Do you understand that? Paul's going to experience that. Jewish Christians are going to experience that as well. I think Paul's, I think what God Jesus is going to say, well done. Um, well done. Um, Paul saw what he was doing, being in the Roman Empire, as being uh, a fulfillment of this prophecy. Look at, he goes on in verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. What work? Being a new covenant priest, reflecting new covenant realities to Gentiles. That's the work. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Obedience is literally under-listening. It's obedience that is based on hearing. That's the word. The word for obedience is literally under-listening. There's a lot of things out there that say what God is like. What, what, when you understand what he's like and you tune that in, that's, that's what... He's describing here, under-listening. Um, by the power and signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. Paul sees himself again as part of this. Who didn't see and understand? It was Gentiles. And that's what God wants. He dispatches his Jewish children to reach his Gentile ones. Um, it's surprising that Paul says he fulfilled. There's no place else for him to go. It's not that Paul talked to every single person. But in Key cities, he put churches in key cities. And what he understood, if there is, and these cities are not tremendously large, but if there are churches in key cities, then people have the opportunity to have new covenant priests there who can help them to understand. That's the way Paul sees it. Um, he believed that his foundational work was done and that he was looking forward to going to Rome because he didn't have a lot of other places that were unreached, that churches hadn't been planted. And look what it says in verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. From Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share 
in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. If, what Paul is saying, if through the agency of Jewish Christians and Jews we come to understand the gospel, then what Paul indicates that it behooves us to, and the, the people at that time, to give. And people in Macedonia and Achaia, they did generously. You know what we find with giving? We talk about giving and there's two things to describe how giving is to be done on this side of the cross. It wasn't a tithe. Paul didn't command and mandate. Again, there's, some do 10%. That's great. Some do more than that. But don't do it because of an obligation. Don't do it as a burden. The way they gave, they were well pleased. They wanted to. Do you know the way giving happens in the New Covenant? It's free will. It's not a mandate that you will be punished if you don't do it. That's not the way it worked. The tithe for Israel was like a social security tax. It was not optional. It was mandated. That's the way the government functioned. So it was roughly, if you boil it down, it roughly was about a 10% and 10% of the 10%. It was roughly 25 to 27% that ended up being the tithe, and it was obligated. On this side of the New Covenant, it's not an obligation that you have to do, that you're robbing God. No. But there is an an opportunity. And so giving is to be free will and face-driven. You know why people gave? Because they wanted to be a part of relieving the poverty of Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. They understood what they had sacrificed to get the message out. And what they did, because they were touched by what they had received through them, that they gave freely. And what Paul did, on two occasions, he collected these offerings and brought them to Jerusalem. Um, They were well pleased. The collection for the poor was important to Paul. Um, Let's finish then. Verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy, be refreshed by your company. We're almost done. We're going to answer the question. Um, And the question is, was that true for Paul? Uh, Here's what happened. Paul had good reason to solicit prayers. When he went to Jerusalem to bring this collection from the churches, he was assaulted and nearly killed in the temple. Because he talked about how Jesus told him to go to the Gentiles, and they were so outraged that they almost tore him apart. He went up into the Roman kind of police station, if you will. He ended up being incarcerated then for several years, During his imprisonment, 
he came to a place where he was going to be transported to be heard by a Jewish king. Here's what happened. And I just hear something like this. And so... Just think about what he had given up. And he had devoted his life to bringing a message, and it, and it wasn't always appreciated. And now he's at the end of his life, and he is back in Jerusalem, and he's, and he's been arrested. He's been in prison for a couple of years, and it looks like he's coming to the end, and this is what happened. The following night, the Lord stood by him. He had a visitor. I can't even imagine. Jesus showed up in the prison. And this is what he said. Take courage. Imagine hearing that. Courage, Paul. When God asks a difficult thing, he doesn't abandon ship. He showed up, and then he said, For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot, we, we learn, and found themselves bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. So 40 individuals bind themselves to an oath. We will not eat or drink until Paul is dead. So what happened, there were many, there were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. So what, what, they, what they were going to do is tell the Romans that we want to hear about this so we can kind of put our two cents in. Here's what happened. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, Paul had a sister. And the sister had a son. Paul had a nephew who ends up hearing about this. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune for... He has something to tell him. So what they ended up doing, they ended up taking Paul with 200 soldiers and by night. So the plot, and I guess those 40 Jews still haven't eaten. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) they're still hungry. Um, Paul ended up in Rome. What ended up happening, he appeared before the the king. And um, Paul knew he wanted to visit Rome. It didn't happen quite as he imagined it would. He did bring the offering to Jerusalem. He wanted to check that off. Here's what happened. The king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, Paul said, I'm a Roman citizen. I appeal my case to Caesar. And then what ended up happening, guess where Paul ended up going? To Rome. And that's where... He was eventually martyred. He never, we don't know if he got to Spain or not. 
He was, he died and was martyred in 64 AD. Before the temple in Jerusalem was decimated in 70, God took him. So, and now, thousands of years later, this emissary to the Gentiles and the world knows about his letters. And his letters... have been translated into just about every language on the face of the earth. Um, When Jesus returns, Paul will appear before God with lots of acceptable offerings. How many offerings do we have here? Put your hand up. If you're listening to this, if you believe, if you understand Jesus came to tell Paul to tell us that it's not an old covenant, it's a new one. And as you make room for the details of the new covenant, Hebrews is going to help us. It has some great things in there. It talks more about covenant and we'll understand more. And as we understand it more, our beliefs will become clearer. As our beliefs become clearer, our behavior will follow suit. That's what transformation is about. So, what do you think? What do you think? What applied to Paul? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What do you think? If God kept this promise for Paul, that all things work together for good. You might not get what you want, but a hundred years from now, I'm going to talk to you and say, what do you think? And you're going to go, God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. I can't believe what he did. If God kept his promise for Paul, he'll keep it for you. We're going to have a closing song. Father, thank you for your purposes and your promises. Your purposes and promises are eternal. They travel through difficulties, but they end in mercy, in good things. Thank you for your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Again, Hebrews doesn't come next week. It comes in two weeks. That's when we'll begin the new series.